economics is the study of human choice in the world we live. Faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. By investigating faith in economics, we can learn how they lead to human flourishing. This is the Faith in Economics podcast, a presentation of the Gortney Institute at Ottawa University. Welcome to our show. I'm Dr. Russ McCullough, the founder and director of the Gortney Institute here at Ottawa University. And with me are my colleagues, Dr. Justin Clark, our Menard family professor of philosophy and ethics, and Dr. Peter Jacobson, our professor of economic education and research. And today we are going to talk about meat. That's M-E-A-T. Been in the headlines a little bit. Peter, lead us into this thing. What are, you, what are we talking? Why are we talking about meat? Sure. So we can pitch off with what is actually happening in the world versus what people might have thought were happening. And so we'll start off with the comment that basically what has happened recently is Joe Biden came forward with a plan to cut emissions, uh, greenhouse gas emissions for the United States. And he wants to cut 50% by 2030. A very ambitious plan would involve a lot of changes to our daily life. One change that people thought that this would include because the Daily Mail released an article was that Americans would have to cut their meat consumption to 10% of what it is. So they would have that to gonna happen. Yeah, they'd have to cut 90% of their meat consumption. Now, later, it was pointed out that Biden himself actually didn't make this proposal. That was only one way that scientists found that we could cut our emissions by 50% would be cutting meat out of the diet. But it does kind of lead us into this topic of, you know, if we are interested in cutting climate emissions very heavily, it actually seems like that is going to be a path, maybe not 90%, but it's going to be a path we have to follow at some point. And in fact, in sort of the, the backlash that came after this, there were sort of a lot of people, you know, the blue checkmark brigade on Twitter who were saying, no one asked you to give up your meat. We're not taking your meat away. And also, here's why we should take all the meat away. Uh, almost <laughs> in the same breath, you had people saying both of these things. So Biden did not officially propose it, but it is a conversation that's happening right now about whether we need to get rid of specifically red meat in order to curb climate change. So we should mention, too, there's so many issues going on here. There's an economics issue. There are at least two different moral issues. And those moral issues, I actually think, cut different ways since the discussion right now was specifically, as you said, about red meat, right? So about beef. And the beef, why it was about beef was due to methane emissions, right, from cows. Farting cows. Yes, which is part, is this partly tied into the Green New Deal, like part of their big proposal? Well, or was it really cu cutting emissions is one of the goals of the Green New Deal? And it may even have that same 20, 30, 50 percent. That's what I was wondering the goals. But, but as far as I know, I'd have to look at it, it could, because it wouldn't surprise me. But as far as I know, there's no specific targets to agriculture in the Green New Deal in terms of legislation. There very much could be, but I don't know. Yeah. And one of the things, you know, people say, well, Biden's plan didn't say this. It, it's pretty generous to call what Biden proposed a plan, right? A it's a too. promise to <laughs> cut emissions by X yeah. with no roadmap explicitly on how to get there. Yeah. And you're 100% right, Peter, that people are saying, well, one way we could get there is to do this thing. Mm -hmm. And it turns out that doing this thing is something that's very, very unpopular. And now I suspect that it's not just this route that's going to be unpopular to doing that, to achieving this goal that Biden's right. put forward. So I'm all for, hey, let's spell out all these paths. And we'll, in doing so, we can tell you how, how much pain and how unpopular each of these paths is going to be. 
Yeah, which uh, we won't go too far off of our meat topic, but another path that we heard recently from uh, is he transportation secretary? I don't know what Pete Buttigieg's job is. Yeah, one of his kind of pitches of something he thought might be a cool idea would be, hey, maybe we can tax people per mile that they drive, (laughs) which of course, like any economist who thinks about it for three seconds would point out like, well, the poorest areas in the country tend to be like these rundown rural areas where people have to drive like 15 miles to even go to work. So it seems like this is like a really bad idea and a, a really, you know, unequal idea. But I agree, Justin, that there's a lot of bad proposals that haven't been spelled out, I think, because they're going to end up being unpopular. And this certainly could be part of Joe Biden or Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's long-term vision for what America will have to do to cut our emissions. Well, luckily, luckily, history is littered with broken promises from politicians. So that's a good part. Yeah, that's a, that's a good, good point. Yeah. <laughs> so one of the, you know, claims was that Biden is going to cut your meat consumption to four pounds a year, which will make it the case that you could only have one burger a month Wow! Um, where, you know, these, these people are having tiny third pound burgers. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Burger is half a pound. I'd blow my quota yeah, on uh, one sitting to yeah. five guys. <laughs> so, um, and of course, if you try to think about how this would even come about, you realize what are they going to like have a punch ticket for meat where you can only get four pounds? Yeah. No, they wouldn't. But what you could possibly see happening is something like a gas tax where they really heavily tax, impose a tax on red meat. Yeah. Cigarette levels of taxes. Yeah. And if we did that, similar to the car thing, we can see who will be hit hardest by this will obviously be poor people because poor people who are the ones who will be dissuaded from buying, you know, a tube of uh, ground beef at Kroger where you can get it for $3 a pound if that shoots up to $12 a pound. But if you are shopping for filet mignon and you are comfortable paying $22 a pound, you're also probably going to be okay paying $33 a pound for it. I don't want to give them too many ideas, but they've probably already thought of this is that when we have our vaccine passport ID, then we can electronically have a meat counter with that too, that the, our, our person who sold us the meat has to like keep track of that. And then the government will have the meat countdown and the, and the vaccine count. And but the vaccine passports are use. I mean, they're pretty much just like, in a, you could, they're a hall pass. You could write your own at this point. Yeah. They can't do the, that yeah. very well. So that, I think they that's what I mean. Once that. they get going though, they'll roll it into a meat counter and it'll be some sort of digital facial ID for each patty that you buy. And yeah, like, there, there could be lots of different technologies for implementing. I think yeah. taxation probably is the, our most Which, likely one early on, but that's cer- to certainly possible. Nail, probably on that. Yeah. So Justin, you talked about earlier, different moral problems associated with this. And so I'm seeing one, probably the the biggest one in this argument being something like we have to protect future, the least controversial, maybe we have to protect future human beings from the specter of climate change. But what am I missing? What are, what are some other arguments? Uh, So that's exactly one argument, right? That since we have moral duties to future human beings, and since climate change is an existential threat to the planet, our duties to these future human beings require us to abstain from eating meat. The second argument that you will often find kind of littered in with this is that, well, eating meat is actually immoral anyway, because animals are sentient beings who feel pain. And when you eat a diet filled with meat, you are making sure that these animals 
are in pain. They are born and bred for you to eat them. You are eating their flesh and therefore since a diet full of meat is a diet that necessarily causes animals to be in pain, our duties to animals compel us to not eat meat. So one is about our duties to future human beings and the other is about our duties to animals. And that was a podcast that we did a while back. So we can reference that maybe in the show notes too, back to a lot of those details. But uh, yeah, do we, do we have a moral argument? And then you got into eating them is actually better than... Well, I, I guess we, we could just ask Justin at this point, <laughs> if he would kind of briefly go through that argument, because I wasn't here when we did that podcast. Yeah. So I would love to hear, because it's very obvious to me, this argument might, might not be right, but I understand the argument we need to protect future generations. But I, I'm not as uh, certain about the, the backgrounds of, you know, the this arguments about whether or not we should eat it. We got to protect the mice, I think is where, <laughs> hopefully I don't steal too much of the punchline here. <laughs> <laughs> because so, it, it's, it seems like to me, my, my simplistic perspective on this always is that I refer back to, to Genesis on this, and that's the open and shut of the case for me, is God gives us dominion, dominion over the animals. That seems to be like a free pass. But on the other hand, there are certain things that I would find probably repugnant, reprehensible, like dogfighting. So probably dominion over the animals isn't a free pass to do anything. So Justin, what's our, our argument here? So the argument is that you are uh, all things considered you ought to do the thing that causes the least amount of suffering right and we can rank diets from least suffering to more suffering and intuitively they go like you know least suffering vegan then vegetarian then pescatarian then you know all the way down to a meat only diet right or i only eat the meat of tortured animals right? so that so that would be a diet that you you might want to avoid right since it involves so much suffering sure um, Okay, but we can, these are kind of really, there's a lot that can go on in these categories. So in, say, a category of an omnivore, most of us are omnivores, you can actually be a more or less principled omnivore. You could only eat meat that, for instance, isn't factory farmed, right? And that presumably involves a lot less suffering. Um, No one denies that uh, what goes on in uh, poultry factory farms is not pleasant for the birds, right? But you can buy uh, pasture-raised poultry. They even have it at grocery stores now. Yeah. And free-range chicken eggs. Yeah, free-range chicken eggs. So if we expand this list then of diets then, then maybe our list looks like vegan, vegetarian, pescatarian, principled omnivore, plebeian omnivore, right? And then carnivore. Animal masochist. Yeah, and on the very bottom, animal masochist, right? Now, what's interesting, though, is that if we're talking about the amount of suffering, then we need to look at the amount of protein that you get kind of per unit of suffering, right? And one way to do that is to think about the amount of protein that you get per death. Now, in this case, this mean, if you look at like a cow, you get a lot of protein from one death of the animal, right? I can sit down with my family and mow through a chicken. Can't do that with a cow, right? Now, it turns out that for things like pasture-grazed cattle, you can get 2.2 deaths per 100 kilograms of usable protein. So that's a lot of protein per death, right? 
Does that make sense? Yep. Yeah. Okay. Now, another, but what we haven't asked is, well, what about grain farming, right? Because grain farming is what is usually going to be replacing the meat in a vegan or vegetarian diet. Do animals die when agricultural grain farming goes on? And it turns out actually, yes, a lot of animals die. They don't, they're not uh, killed on purpose, but large scale agriculture requires you to do a lot of rodent control. And these rodents, you know, field mice, these are mammals. These mammals care for their children. They sing songs to their children. Um, they form pairwise bonds. And the kinds of death that they suffer when agricultural, in large scale agricultural farming is actually pretty horrendous. They're poisoned, they're mm -hmm. ripped apart in threshers. So it actually turns out that there are 55 deaths per 100 kilograms of usable protein uh, for grain farming. So it turns out that our initial list of suffering uh, diets that involve the most amount of suffering was wrong. Principled omnivorism involves the least amount of suffering. By principled omnivorism, we mean here eating things like free range cattle. Uh, free range cattle uh, roam over land that usually can't be farmed anyway. They have a very little impact on, they're not trampling animals and you get 2.2 deaths per 100 kilograms of usable protein. So if we actually look at the list of diets that go from least suffering to most suffering, it's principled omnivorism is at the top. Now, does that mean that we ought to, you know, shove this in vegans' face and force them to be principled omnivorists? I don't think so. I don't think that that means if you're a vegan, you have to become an omnivore. Because I also think that the premise that we started out this entire argument with is false. It's not the case that you need to eat the, uh, the diet that has the least amount of suffering. But were that, were that the case, you would need to be an omnivore. All right. So I think when we come back to, from break here, we'll get a little bit more into this meat argument. And I had a couple other things that came to mind when we mentioned climate change on whether that ends up being a, just, a reasonable justification for current budget deficits that are generational transfers ultimately because we're we're helping those kids out that are unborn at this point so i thought that might be a fun thing to bring up and we'll be back in just a bit if you enjoy our podcast and want to support our work please consider a one-time or recurring donation visit donate.123povertysucks.org the gortney institute at ottawa university is the best place in the midwest for students interested in freedom and justice and its impact on human flourishing Faith and Economics in Action. We have lots of great student programs here at Ottawa. Next week, we're kicking off our Urbit uh, educational session where we have some people from Urbit uh, presenting materials along with uh, Professor Justin Clark and kind of learning on how to go digitally off the grid. So if you're tired of Facebook or somebody else always being able to track your stuff, Urbit is a solution for that on how you can have peer-to-peer -peer communication. And so that kind of privacy can lead to some flourishing of its own. So if you or someone else you know is looking for a college like that, contact Peter, Justin, or Russ today. Don't forget to check out our show notes for this episode at podcast.123povertysucks.org. All right, welcome back. My cliffhanger was related to budget deficit and Peter had a furrowed brow. Uh, where was I going with that? So when you were talking about the climate change arguments and that you know, we're in for a disaster 100 years from now or 200 years from now. 
Well, it kind of give, gives rise to justifying a current budget deficit that we actually can't afford that we're usually against because we're passing debt on to our babies, right? Future, future unborn taxpayers are going to be paying for the deficits today and the debts that we're racking up. And so um, I think that actually gives a little justification to policymakers to say, oh, well, this is for climate change. So any, any money that we spend relative to lowering, you know, the planet's uh, temperature or, you know, the oceans, you name it, whatever we're doing to save the climate, it's okay to run a budget deficit for that because we're actually helping those unborn people anyway, because the detrimental effects aren't going to be for another hundred years. And so this is perfect, which it kind of bleeds into last week, where anytime we give the politicians any little inch of justification for a deficit, they run with it like crazy, like with uh, the stuff we talked about with Keynes last week and, and otherwise. So I thought I'd throw that little thing on the deficit. I think we need to keep thinking about this climate change stuff as well, but uh, that, that came to mind for me. I was wondering if one of you would maybe talk a little bit about discounting, and it's it seems like in a lot of these arguments, we aren't doing what we usually do when we do kind of economic arguments because one of the things that usually gets that usually isn't mentioned is that the sacrifices that we are going to impose on current people are going to benefit future people and those future people are actually going to be richer than the people who are bearing the burden right now and correct me if i'm wrong but usually in economics don't we do a kind of discounting we discount the benefit that goes to people who are have a much higher income that and then also time doing a present value calculation would be the other one and we do have a problem in behavioral economics called hyperbolic discounting where people irrationally discount something too much because they want it now it's kind of our materialism of give it to me now now everything's got to be i'll take a for instance um would you rather have a hundred dollars today or a hundred and twenty dollars a year from now well that's a 20 percent rate of return that's probably going to beat the pants off of the stock market or most investments alternatives that you have but you can bet your bottom dollar that most people would take the $100 bill in their hand today, even if it was guaranteed a 20% return tomorrow. And so that's the notion of hyperbolic discounting. Yeah, I think what discounting and as Russ mentioned, discounting over time really gets us to. And so there, there's one concept that I think you were talking about, Justin, which is the diminishing marginal utility of income. And I think that's related to this too. And there's also time discounting. And so this, the, the example I always ask with my students is because they always get it right without fail. Everyone knows this, but they just have never thought about what it means before. Is I ask my students, I'm going to give you two options. I can either give you $100 today or $100 a year from now. Everyone without fail always selects $100 today. And sometimes they have trouble explaining to me why. They, they've never really thought about why. But the reason is, is that people value things today or they value the opportunities you give them today more than they value those same opportunities in the future. So long as like you're not offering like, well, do you want a thousand pounds of apples today or a thousand pounds of apples over like 10 years? That, then that changes because it's factors like rotting. But things like wealth don't rot. And so future wealth, just by the fact that people prefer things today over things tomorrow, that is they, they have a preference for present consumption over future consumption. Future income is worth less than present income. That's sort of the implication of this, that $100 tomorrow or $100 a year from now must be worth less than $100 today. Otherwise, you would have picked the other option. And so we call this the discounting, and there's a specific discount rate. 
That is, there's something, if you aggregated everyone up in the economy, there's some rate that would describe how little future wealth is valued relative to current wealth. And so Justin's right that a lot of times we talk about the future of humanity without reference to, well, you know, how much should we discount the well-being of future people? Because it's not zero. No one acts like it's zero. Everyone acts like they, they prefer consumption uh, today to tomorrow. And so we implicitly recognize that, but we, we don't always apply it. The second thing that Justin, I, I think, was alluding to was that economists generally say that there's diminishing marginal utility. Some economists will say, well, this isn't necessarily true, but I actually think that it's something that is an economic law uh, that people, as you give them more of some good, everything else held constant, people like less of it. And I think that's true of money too, or wealth. That is, if I give you more and more and more wealth, that last dollar of wealth that I give you is going to be less important to you than the first dollar of wealth that I give to you. And, you know, the evidence of that is that you accept that first dollar of wealth first. And so you're going to use it for the thing that you value most, whereas that last one by necessity, you're using it for something you value less. And so both of those factors, I think, come into play here into this argument about climate change. And the, the pushback on that, though, is it leads to the, well, we can tax the rich proportionately more than the poor, which, by the way, I agree with. I'm not a flat tax guy, but there are limits to that, too. And so, you know, what is the person making $250,000 a year doing with the incremental $10,000 that they get in terms of Peter was bringing up utility or happiness? You know, how much extra happiness can that extra $10,000 get? Is, is a little bit misleading because if they're putting that extra 10,000 into productive activities, it's actually creating value for other people. Like they're reinvesting right. it into their business, yeah. for instance, or they're doing something else. So uh, there's those other factors of the marketplace where we have lots of additional happiness through just pure exchange. And so if some individuals are more productive with what they do with their extra dollar of income, not quite fair to say that it's justified to tax them that because then they have, if we tax them at 80% or something, then they might say, I'm not going to go risk myself on that business to reinvest that 10,000. I'm just going to sit on the sidelines. It's not worth it. And I think this gets us to a good point, which is what I find to be at the center of the problem of a lot of climate change analysis, especially with what we're talking about today, is that People talk about like red meat, like it's just that, well, you get your burger and you know, that that's all. But there's a whole industry of people whose lives and livelihoods are surrounded by agriculture and red meat and things like this. And so in other words, there is a cost to climate change regulations. That is, if we were to cut meat 90% or something like that, a lot of people would lose a lot of utility by losing their jobs. Uh, that also those jobs are a reflection of the fact that people actually do value meat a lot. You can, you know, kind of turn your nose up at them as much as you want, but people value the things they value and meat is something people value a lot. Uh, otherwise, that industry wouldn't be so large. So there's a big utility loss. And actually, economists have tried to measure not only what are the costs of climate change, but what are the costs of climate change policy and compare those things, because that's the relevant question for any policy is what is the cost of this policy compared to the cost of the climate change that it would prevent. And so one famous economist who's done this and won a Nobel Prize for it was William Nordhaus. He runs these little models called DICE models. And essentially what they try to do is they try to measure how fast the economy will grow over time when you have a random a randomly changing macroeconomy that's impacted by climate shocks and so changes to the climate. And so he runs that model. He compares it to a model where we have less climate shocks, but also we have less industries which use climate resources like, you know, we cut the meat industry, what happens? Mm. And actually what Nordhaus finds is, for example, for like carbon taxes, if Nordhaus's models are right, 
which I actually have reason to believe that they even maybe overestimate how much we should regulate. And we can talk about that. But even if, you know, those models are correct and they're, they're not too li- or not too conservative, a lot of European countries, for example, like France, already have a, again, one policy, a carbon tax that's greater than what the optimal carbon tax, according to Nordhaus is. And so when you actually take into account the cost of climate change regulation, it actually turns out to be the case that we maybe are, you know, already accepting too much regulation mm-hmm. as it is. Now, that, that might not be true across the board, but the point is, it's not just like a free lunch to stop climate change. We lose something and we have to weigh what we lose. So to be clear, when people make this argument about meat, right, I'm going to bring it back to meat because I like meat and I don't like people who tell me that I can't have it. <laughs> So the argument sometimes gets put in these three different ways. They say, well, we need to reduce red meat because of the environment. And if you press back on that, they say, well, actually, we, even if you disagree with me there, you should do it because it's better for your health. And if you push back there, they say, well, even if you disagree with those two things, it's actually, you shouldn't be eating it anyway, because meat is, comes from animals and they're in pain, right? So I've given an argument against that third one, which I think is pretty decisive. It's actually not the case that a a vegan diet involves less suffering. If you want to go back to that second argument that it's better for your health, I don't want to get into the argument here, but that is very dubitable as well. And if you read people like uh, Gary Taubes, who wrote a book called Good Calories, Bad Calories, I think, or Good Fat, Bad Fat, something like that. Um, This uh, wisdom of the past... 30 years has kind of been turned on its head recently that, that, you know, fats are actually necessarily good for you and animal fats in particular. So that's at least very dubitable as well. So those two arguments can easily be doubted. This first one, which is the one that I take it you guys were pressing on, which is that we need to do it to stop climate change. I think also, if you look at the models, the amount of climate the amount of reduction in global temperatures, even if we hit this 2030 target, <laughs> is incredibly small, right? And that assumes that if we reduce our carbon by 50%, that other countries won't pick up that slack. Mm-hmm. So I was wondering if right. you had anything to say about that. Yeah, well, actually, for some resources, I'd have to think about carbon, but for some resources, <laughs> it's actually exactly the opposite. Gasoline's a really good example. That was what Pete Buttigieg, we wanted to lower by having the driving tax. Think of what happens. We have a a demand side regulation. In other words, we're trying to impact the demand for gasoline, which is a tax on gasoline. If we tax Americans' consumption of gasoline, that's going to decrease the demand for gasoline in the world. What does that cause? Well, that causes for people in China, people in India, people in developing countries, that causes a lower price for gasoline. When you have a lower price for something, people buy more of it. And so actually there, there's nothing that says that decreasing U.S. demand won't even, it's possible, it just depends on how, what the demand curve looks like. It's possible that, that a decrease in demand in the U.S. could actually increase the amount of yeah, gas. If they're very the elastic exactly. and responsive, to, which they very well could be. Yeah, like that, that, that's exactly right. In a developing country, it's like, oh, wow, that, that's significant for me, a little reduction in gas prices and all of a sudden. And by the way, economists know that over time, people do become more elastic with their demand curves. And And so even if tomorrow it doesn't mean more consumption in gasoline, a year from now, people might, with their more elastic demands curves, totally outdo all of the the benefits conferred by the U.S. 
And so that, that's one major issue that we could actually increase the amount of gasoline demanded. Another problem with this argument, which kind of spurs on is all these like estimates that we're talking about of, of global climate change and, you know, we're comparing temperatures over time. The path where we don't take action implicitly assumes, and this is true, like this isn't something that I'm m- making up. If you look at the models, here comes it, Julian Simon. It implicitly assumes <laughs> that people do not adapt over time, which yeah. we also know isn't true. People have greatly changed the climate. There's a reason people can live in deserts today. Irrigation is changing your climate. Air conditioning, AC is climate control. People don't really care if it's 100 degrees outside, if they get to spend most of the time inside at 70 degrees. They might care a little bit, but they don't care as much as before we had air conditioning. Yeah. And so people actually do adapt in ways that could lower the average temperature they experience pretty easily. And we've seen and that air conditioning the time. through the innovation too. That's the right. Innovation of it, the, the changing, I think is part of Julian Simon's argument, right? That yeah. Was, we're going to figure out, adapt and innovate our way out of problems when they become timely enough for us to do so. And this gets to an even deeper and maybe more counterintuitive problem with regulations on things like meat is that if we regulate things like meat, we regulate this problem away, we've essentially lessened the opportunity for entrepreneurs to, or lessens the incentive for entrepreneurs to find other solutions. Mm -hmm. And so if methane production by cows isn't causing a big climate problem, there's not very much incentive for you to go out and find a solution. So we actually, by implementing regulations, might forego technological solutions that leave us in a better place than either outcome. And so you've essentially de-incentivized people from innovating when you engage in these sorts of policies. Well, I want to throw this back to you, Peter, because I can almost hear people saying it. The meat industry is going to lose jobs. There's people there that that's a big part. And those people are going to be hurt. And President Biden steps in and says, oh, no, no, no. They're, they're just going to, instead of raising cattle, they're going to be wind farmers now. Because we're got, we've got this new industry that's going to be a green industry. And those people who lose the cattle jobs, of course, are just going to be in this business here with all the Green New Deal jobs. What's your response to that? There's a, a few different responses. One of them you could say is that, well, is the wind industry going to be more like the internet or more like Tang? Both of these are government <laughs> projects that millions of dollars were spent on. One of them probably worth it. Another one of them, not so much. And people tend to point to things like the internet and, you know, big things that are very visible as the benefits of government, but you don't often see the wasted opportunities that government puts into place. And so maybe the wind industry could be a big innovation, but there's nothing that says that an entrepreneur couldn't come with that same innovation or a better one. So, and, and, you know, this is difficult because we're dealing now with like hypotheticals. Unfortunately, you know, one of the things that economist F.A. Hayek told us is that the argument for freedom often rests on faith in people's ability to do things that we can't stay understand. That's not a direct quote, but basically the gist of it is that we can't always, when we're making the argument for freedom, point to, well, this is the benefit uh, because we don't know what the benefit will be. And so it's hard to make the arguments, but it's also true. It's pretty hard for Biden or any other officials to know the preferences of people on how much they prefer meat to other substitutes and and wind and to have to be directing resources down a place where they're subsidized is definitely a question mark of pushing it into uncertain grounds, whereas the market, the preferences are revealed where it's not heavily regulated anyway, that 
the meat prices are what they are because that's what people want. Yeah. And I, I think this also gets to uh, another problem, which is there's a lot of sneering in conversations like this, like, oh, just give up your hamburgers. It's not that big of a deal. You can't give up hamburgers to save the planet. Well, we've shed light on, by the way, why that's dubious, why actually giving up the hamburgers might make the planet worse, you know, less incentive for innovation. <laughs> People, you know, maybe in people in other countries will eat more meat if Americans eat less. Those same arguments apply to meat. But, you know, even that aside, elites, you know, whether it's, you know, journalists or people in the media who are kind of, again, these blue checkmark brigade who's saying right now, well, couldn't you give up meat anyways? Or politicians, whoever it is, who say, well, this isn't that important. You need to get over it. You know, I think this is kind of shallow thinking is like we actually don't know how important thing is to people. We know that food is actually a really central part of people's culture. It actually has made a big difference in culture over time. <laughs> and so it's really easy to say, oh, this doesn't matter so much to save the planet. But you don't really get to decide for other people what matters to them. You know, I, I just think that the whole thinking is based on an idea that like we have the better idea of what the world should be. You have a terrible idea and you're backwards and you want to eat meat like a caveman. And so stop eating your meat. And, and I think that this is kind of a, a gross way to respond to the situation too. It's like, well, just give it up. It doesn't matter that much. It's like, you don't know how much it matters to people. Yeah. And that this gets to what you're saying is that Joe Biden, you know, a future Republican president, we don't know how much people value things. And so just taking them away and saying that you don't actually value these that much. Uh, it's not a workable solution. Yeah, it kind of sounds like getting to the philosophical area of just discounting our dignity and our freedom and our humanity yeah come on man yeah uh, <laughs> yeah i think you're 100 percent right that there is a sneering and that i think more than anything else is what people object to the yeah. most this idea that somebody else knows what mm -hmm. uh, the good life is for me um i i do take food really seriously um i love food um i love cooking it um you know i'll spend a day making like a a sauce or something and this idea that, you know, I don't know if, if any of you had ever, ever seen this, there was a, a CNN report in like 2008, where they went to the home where Chuck Schumer and two other senators lived in DC while uh, it was in session. It looked, I lived in a fraternity house that got condemned. It looked <laughs> way worse than this. <laughs> really? Yeah, they were sleeping on the couch there were just, there was a chair with a hole in it. And it's like, if these people, you know, <laughs> I'm not going to let anybody else, and especially not anybody who <laughs> voluntarily lives like that, tell me the way I should order my life. Um, right. You know, go to hell. Uh, <laughs> All right, I got one little topic. We're about out of time, but I, I didn't, I just wanted to hear if you heard anything about this, but synthetic meat's been brought up over time that we can, you know, use a 3D printer and make a T-bone or something. And that the, the genetic manufacturing meat, has there been prog progress on that? Because that actually wouldn't bother me. I, if it tastes the same and it's all the same, you know, I'd be up for eating synthetic meat, but I don't know where that argument's at. I haven't heard it for a while. Yeah, there, there are countries where you can now buy syn synthetic meat pretty regularly. Right? Yeah, there's like, gosh, I, one, uh, I was just reading the article about it. it was, they were mentioning one of the Eastern Asian countries where you can buy synthetic chicken pretty, pretty close huh. to the market price. And so it is coming along. I don't have a problem with synthetic meat either. I'll be interested to see if it does taste the same. I, I think that that will be yeah. the, the most difficult thing for people to pull off. 
But by the way, even if synthetic meat does become something that's, you know, big and important, again, I don't assign value to things for other people. And so if people don't think that this lab created meat is the same thing as, you know, a naturally produced hamburger, who am I to tell them otherwise? I don't think I am. I think I would probably, you know, be just as happy either way. If it's cheaper, I'm definitely. Well, there you it. go. That's <laughs> what I was waiting to hear. Yeah. That's what got me buying these light bulbs too. It's like, oh, well, they last nine years, you know, yeah. I finally got to the point where I agree with the, let's say climate minded argument because you're giving me a product that's superior to what I had before. It's cheaper. Yeah. I'm going to buy it. Yeah. So, so let the market lead the way on. So on I'd, I'd probably case. do it. Same, yeah. same thing, but I wouldn't begrudge someone if they didn't either. I have arguments about synthetic meat. <laughs> okay. So first there's two different kinds of synthetic meat we're talking about, right? One is something like the impossible burger, which is a plant-based mm -hmm. burger that's right. supposed to taste like meat. Yeah. So that. I don't like just because I mean, the reason I want to eat meat is because I want it to be meat. I actually think meat is very healthy for you. Yeah. But yeah. Uh, you could also talk about lab grown meat. That that's the one like I was thinking yeah, of. I, I, I think that's whatever. what we were the both cloning, talking about. The that's a good point. Okay. Now, if the argument against cattle is that it's, it produces all this methane, okay, let's look at the carbon footprint of uh, lab created lab, meat yeah. that you know will involve all the R&D that went into it. Yeah. Uh, that's one argument against it, which is that it, I suspect that footprint Similar is Similar to Tesla large. production and Toyota Prius production. Yeah. So then you might say, well, at least no animal has to die, right? Um, but if you look on net, the, the life of, say, a lamb, a free-range lamb, yeah, that last day sucks. <laughs> but, you know, when I worked at a restaurant, our cooks would go out to meet our lamb farmers, and they were all pasture-raised. These lambs have great lives yeah, up until that up last, to the day. last day. And so you have to say, well, is it worth eliminating that life from existence? Totally, because that lamb will not be born if it is not going to be eaten. And I would say that on balance, that's a life that's worth living. Oh, I see what you're saying. Yeah, and, and they kill them quickly, and of course, it's all humane Yes, it can be, right? Yeah, it's, it's as humane as possible. Yeah, they probably don't that, know what's coming. Boom, they're done. Yeah, on net balance, that's a life worth living, mm -hmm. I think. Yeah. So, Well, that looks like an interesting argument to close this one out. So I'd like to thank you all for listening to the Gorton Institute's production here of the Faith and Economics podcast. We appreciate it. If you find us in the ranking somewhere, a five-star rating helps other people find us. Other than that, be fruitful and multiply. Thanks. Mm -hmm.